Hi and welcome to the Msingi Talks podcast, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. This podcast ventures deeper into issues of faith, advocacy, activism, and makes connections between these worlds. Psalms 89.14 states that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And here we unpack how the church as the body of Christ and institution can faithfully embody justice and righteousness in both word and deed. Karibuni and let's do justice. everybody and welcome to another episode of the Msingi Talks podcast and today I am highly highly honored to have Uncle Craig Stewart on here. Drum rolls, we have drum rolls, imaginary <laughs> drum rolls <laughs> for you. Uh, Uncle Craig, Karibu. Sante sana. Yeah, Craig um, is, I don't know, like how long have i actually known you i'm not sure but um, i'm not sure either 2008 hmm. when i did my field work with the warehouse i'm not sure hmm. but i'm very honored to have you on here uh craig is will tell us who he is and then we'll we'll understand why we are having this conversation <laughs> please tell the peeps who who you are well, it is my honor. I, I've been listening to Msingi Talks and I, as you know, I've been a, I'm a huge fan of Msingi and so I'm very, very excited and honored to be on here with you. Um, yeah, my name is, is Craig Stewart. Tata Kasikalela, Kasino Vuyo, Kogoniswa, which are my three children. And uh, I live in uh, the city currently known as Cape Town. Um, on the at the foot of Hurikwaha Mountain, uh, which is the the mountain um, also now known as Table Mountain, um, in the the land of the Khoi and the Griko people, and um, so that's where I currently reside on the banks of the Lisbeck River, where the first encounter between uh, Western colonialists and uh, the local Khoisan people uh, happened. Um, at the start of colonization in this part of the world. It's the river that I live on. I um, work for an organization called The Warehouse. Um, it's a funny name, but really its origins are simply that we have been in a warehouse for a long time. Although as of the last year, we don't have a warehouse, but we still called The Warehouse. Um, and as an organization, we were formed and are passionate about seeing particularly local congregations, so the church as a local community on a local corner, um, living out the peace and justice of God for the world. That in a world where we as believers um, and followers of Jesus have played such a strong role in, in bringing oppression along with the gospel, what does it mean to live out that gospel in our streets and our neighborhoods that is redemptive, restitutive, um, that seeks to genuinely live out God's peace and justice for the world in the place where we live and doing it in a way that is connected to the other places in our city and the other places in the world. Um, so that's the work of the warehouse and, and that's the community in which I function and spend my working life. I think um for many of us on this podcast and everywhere else, I I always say that the warehouse is who Msingi wants to be when we grow up. 
really learned so much um, from you and continue to be built uh, by the warehouse, by many of my siblings there. And uh, I'm really honored to to know you and to learn from, from that community. It's, and really the, the beautiful and honest way that these that you desire to do justice and uh, for the church to be bringers of justice, but also to, to be at the forefront of uh, repentance for a lot of injustices that have been done by the church and uh, by people who've been privileged uh, or who privileged themselves. Yeah, so I wanna ask you something, um, first something very, Not simple, but something very out of the box. What brings you joy? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what brings you joy? So, gosh, in my very old age, you know, now I'm, I'm it took me a long time to get used to this term uncle. I used to think, no, I'm, but um, mm -hmm. now that I, I'm coming to grips with the fact that I'm moving towards being an elder and I can be called uncle and be comfortable with it. But I am learning about myself and I, I'm a, um, I have lots and lots of friends who are passionate about the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I'm discovering I'm a three. And I think if I'm understanding it correctly, one of the things about a three is that you don't know your own feelings. So that simple question scares me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. but what brings me joy? I love being on my bicycle um, as the sun comes up over Cape Town. I'm riding on the mountain and before the day has started and watching the sun emerge, I take great joy in sitting around the table with friends and my children and Liesl and sharing a meal and breaking bread and, and, uh, and learning from each other. Um, I take joy in getting dust on my feet in friends, homes and communities and learning from them. Um, and being present in places, uh, being, being those moments of joy, perhaps, yeah. So I have to explore this question because I don't really know the answer. <laughs> but um, I think no, one of the places, one of the, one of the places that generates joy for me, I think, as I think about that is, is um, I sometimes talk about the opportunity to bear witness to God's grace in hard places. So in places impacted by oppression, that it's still possible to bear witness to God's grace there. Mm. Um, I've got some friends who talk about God's grace pooling in the lowest places. And mm. so these places that should be and are in every visible form, places of abandonment and, and despair, and yet somehow, somehow God's grace penetrates and we can bear witness to that. Um, and, and that that joy isn't a joy of, of contentment that we should leave it there. Oh, shame that they're so happy, even though they're in that situation. That's not it at all. It's yeah. this kind of sense of like, wow, like even here we can find God's grace. And maybe most profoundly here we can find God's grace. And, and, and the, the remarkable joy that it is to see that and and that joy is sometimes and very often tinged with lament and tinged with anger so it's kind of like a weird welling up of emotions but um 
Yeah, and then seeing maybe my last answer to that question, watching people come into themselves, watching Singi Talks podcast with Lusanda, Sisihle, Tandi, and Carol having a conversation brings tears to my eyes and deep joy to my heart. Thank you. <laughs> and on the, on the other side, because on the one side of joy is sorrow. What brings mm. you sorrow? Ooh. What pains you? So many things. Um, I mean, I think I've, so this answer probably differs based on the week that I've had as to like what's, but I am, I've been particularly somehow in the last three or four weeks, um, I've, I've felt the degree of particular lament and it's not because it's new and it's not because it wasn't there before, but I, I think in the last few weeks I've, I've bumped into and been confronted with and somehow felt the pain in a kind of extraordinary way. You know, there are times that you live with something and you're aware that it's there. And then, and then I don't know whether your defenses drop or whether God just wants to like open you up to a deeper level of understanding. And so it's just like God cracks you open and it sneaks in. Um, I'm blessed with a community of people at the warehouse that teach me and lead me and welcome me into their stories. And um, Jesus talks about, um, you know, these people who have um, hardened hearts, calloused hearts is the word Jesus says, calloused hearts. And they got these calloused hearts. And so they have ears that will not hear and eyes that will not see. And, and I think power and privilege and the idolatry of whiteness um, leads to calloused hearts, you know, leads to hearts that, that will not see that will not hear. And, and as a result, the goodness of God is not available in the same way that, and that it's not available to them. And then in their behavior and in their oppression, they wound and hurt others. And, and um, I think that's, I found that particularly hard in the last few weeks and I've, and in uncovering that, I kind of look back over my own story and my own behavior and, recognize the many places where that idolatry still has my heart calloused, where I'm still fearful of completely letting go, of completely restituting, of completely rejecting the white supremacy of my life and the whiteness of my life and stepping into a much better identity, a much more uh, expensive positioning in this world. And, and, and yet, you know, the very nature of idolatry is it's the place I find comfort in. So I find that painful too, that when I am confronted with my own, not just, it'd be much easier if it was just the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's when I wake up in the morning, when they wake up in the morning and I go, oh dear, it's me too. <laughs> um, will it ever end? So that's, that's particularly present for me. I mean, if you, if you talk in broader schemes, like, I, I hate I hate that people in the city of mine build mansions and live in shacks. I mean, you know the city and you know that people who stand yeah. Yeah. Um, on the side of the road and then they go and they work in someone's mansion for a day building it. And Isaiah tells us that people will build houses and live in them. And, and, and we live in the situation where people build mansions and live in shacks or where people go hungry even though they're working on farms or where people... Yeah work but don't see the fruit of that labor and and so those things break me mm. you know over and over again yeah 
Wow. Um, thank you, Craig, for that. Um, I'm wondering about the, your journey, your journey into, because I remember you saying you were, you studied as a teacher, a science teacher, was it? Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, how did you find yourself at the warehouse? What's the journey that brought you here? <laughs> Sure. And how do you connect? Um, when was the first time you made the connection between faith and justice and uh, advocacy and activism? And also, I'm asking you like three questions in one. Yes. And also, like uh, a book in the Bible, a verse in the Bible that really connects you to this journey. Yo. So you're going to have to remind me if I don't miss them. Yes. If I miss yes, them. I will. So yeah, I mean, my first, my first, well, actually, my first job as I reached the end of university was a freshwater ecologist. Um, there's a fancy English word called a limnologist, and I was a, and I was a limnologist. Um, and but I just did that for a short while. So, um, what do limnologists do? A, lim, a limnologist is a freshwater ecologist. So you work in rivers and you. You try and understand river iron systems and understand the life in a river and and the like. And I loved it. I, to this day, um, talk about things that give me joy. Like mm. if I can walk, if I can walk a river with my feet in it, it gives me joy. Yeah. Like to pay attention to the life of a river. Because I think there's some, there's some truth there. Like one of the questions you should ask yourself of a river is like you're standing on its banks. Like what is the river? Is the river mm. just the water? Is the river the trees on the side of the river? Actually, the river is much bigger than the visible water you can see because it's the water underneath. Anyway, so I'm quite interested in that. Yeah. But I, um, you know, I grew up in apartheid South Africa. And um, for me, towards the end of university, uh, one of the decisions I needed to make was, would I be willing to um, be conscripted into the South African army because all white men over the age of 18 had to do at the time had to do two years of what they called service um, in the South African military, which usually involved um, fighting in an, an illegal wars on the Namibian border, um, the Namibian Angola border, you know, or policing unrest in the townships. And I'd come to a place of, I wasn't willing to do that. So I was exploring options and tried to find, while I was trying to land on what my final answer would be, I'd find myself doing an education degree for the uh, a, a post a thing. And I'd found I loved the classroom. And so I became a teacher. I'd been studying science and I became a teacher. And, um, you know, so that, that led to, I did education for a while and then I moved into an education NGO and then, I, a, a person who became a friend and a colleague was standing up in the church I was part of where you and I probably met for the first time, Christchurch Kenilworth, and said, hey, we've got this idea. We're going we're gonna, to, we're gonna, we want to do something different about poverty and injustice in the city of Cape Town. And we've, we've got some money. We want to hire someone to help us like, get a warehouse and do things. And I felt God's prompting to put my hat in the ring for that. And, mm. and I got that job and we started learning what the warehouse was going to be. We kind of learned our way into it rather than, and I think we still are, rather than beginning with the end in mind. Because um, quite truly, we didn't really know back then. Um, so that's, you know, that's the biographical part to it. I think um, I, 
in that there are stories. So um, my my university. So if we go back to when I'm 12, I um, I'm growing up in what is now known as Tshwane in South Africa, Pretoria, and and every young white kid at that time would go to what we called felt school. So felt is like bush, the bush school, but really they were indoctrinating camps. So. Um, I, as a 12 year old, we were taken off to felt school, bush school, and I was very excited because I got to build tents and live in the outside and do things, but it was only white kids. And, and I often go back to this moment where they took us up on a hill um, in this place in the mountains and um, walked us, we went for this walk. And when we got to the top of this hill near the camp where we were, they pointed to a, a railway line in the distance and and said that's where the black terrorists are um, because that's where what was then known as a place called Paputotswana was and so they said no the black terrorists are there and and you need to know that the black terrorists know they're white kids here and so they're going to want to come kill you and so part of the function for this week is that you're going to have to stand guard um, at night in this camp and so at night we would alternate and we would go into the butch and the pitch dark as 12 year old boys and, and wait for the black terrorists to come kill us. And, and then um, at one night, people emerged out of the bush with guns, firing them and all the rest of it. And it was a fake attack, but you didn't know that until, and so the guards had to notice and everybody piled out of their tents and there we were hiding thing. And, and that happened to like every white kid in thing is like, you you know, and so, so then you bounce forward 10 years and I'm at university of Cape town and it's in the mid eighties. So I'm very old now I'm pointing it out. I do deserve to be called uncle. And uh, if only for my age and, um, and I remember there being protests at the university of Cape town. And we were living under martial law at the time, the South African government called it state of emergency. And um, there were protests on campus. And there was this moment where a group of, a big group of uh, predominantly black students and some white students came, came down the aisle. I was fresh at university, didn't know anything. And I heard the singing and heard the stomping of a, of a toy toy happening, you know? And I, the hair in the back of my neck went up and one part of me thought, oh, the black people are here to kill me. Like that 12 year old boy kicked in and becoming aware of that and conscious of that became, becomes one of the threads of the story of like, oh, wow, this thing is wired into me. And, yeah. and that journey took me into the community of Kualanga in Cape Town and discovering that, that um, this, this place Kualanga was no more than five minutes walk, 10 minutes walk from my home. Although if you drove, you had to drive a long way because boundaries were created, so you couldn't cross them. Yeah. And and but I learned there that the, the pastors that um, in my churches who said there was peace were like the Old Testament prophets who were saying peace, peace when there was no peace, shalom, shalom when there is no shalom. They they said there was peace, but there wasn't. Mm. Five minutes away, there's profound violence happening, and and finding myself in Kualanga and beginning to unpack this primal fear that had been locked in, been deliberately intentionally layered down to me like this. We've got to, when we do this work in this country, and I think it's true across the world, 
like I think we've got to recognize that an immense amount of imaginative work went into, I heard that today from a conversation between a friend Shamir and Barry saying like there was so much imaginative work done to construct apartheid and construct the apartheid nation and city that if we're going to undo it, we need more imagination. We can't think that it's just a passive thing. And and so then, and then a few years later, so here's one of the big connector moments for me was ending up in a community called Gazankulu in the north of our country, um, where they were working alongside some people who were fleeing um, what we would term refugees, but people from Mozambique who were fleeing the conflict in Mozambique and finding themselves in, in what was then called Gazankulu and right on the edge of the Kruger National Park and having this profound mystical experience where we had an evening, the one evening where a group of eight or nine young kids, the oldest 17, had been walking for days and, you know, dodging, literally dodging lions and all the rest of it as they came across the border. And they arrived there and that night we gathered in prayer and I found myself sitting praying in a language, I wasn't praying in the language, but the community were praying in Portuguese and, and Shona, I think. And and I became conscious of Christ's presence in like what for me and my memory is a mystically very material way. That and and I think although my career took some journeys away from that, that kind of moment grounded me of like this this I spoke earlier, bearing witness to God's grace in these unexpected dark places, like like God's the grace of God's felt presence was there for me in that moment on, in this village where for the first time in my life, I was very much the minority in terms of the color of my skin. And, and yet I felt more at home than I had felt for a really long time. Um, so that's the journey of justice. And then I entered into the warehouse somewhat naively. I thought I knew what I was doing and, and this amazing community over the years in the warehouse of, of having these layers, like, you know, scripture talks about God's kindness leading us to repentance, that this this kindness of God of, of having friends and colleagues who were courageous enough to kind of say to me, hey, you, you're, you're living out a narrative that is about white supremacy. It's not about the goodness of God in the world. It's not about the justice of God in the world. And so things that began for me as just being charitable and merciful because of poverty needed to be dealt with, recognizing that I was complicit in those in ways that I hadn't previously understood and that my own behavior and my own framing was framed within an understanding of the world. And so the last 15 years have been I've had all these leaders, you know, people you know, whether it's Renee or Nkosi or Zwabantu or um, Caroline or Lusanda or Tandi or Sukile or um, Joy Chawe or um, Ola or, you know, I can keep naming these people that see these who, who've invited me into a story and slowly we've learned together. And so that connection of, of the peace and justice of God and my own life getting stronger and stronger, I think. Um, and, and the recognition that I do have to die. Like, the, it, like, like there's truth in the good news that, that the good news is embraced by me dying. And for me as a white man in this world where whiteness and masculinity have been portrayed as the things we need to idealize and that give me power. So it's, it's, it is very tempting 
and there are lots of occasions where I lean into it to use those to move forward in the world and to discover that Jesus's invitation to me is to die to those, to, to be baptized that dies to those as an act of commitment rather as a, as a kindness that is repentant and, you know, take up our cross daily. It's a, <laughs> like they're, they're big and they're, they're, um, they're always offering possibility, you know? And so, I suppose like Satan taking Jesus up onto high places and saying, yeah, if you bow to me, I can give you the world. You know, there's this allure. I've forgotten now whether I've answered your questions or not, but that's, <laughs> that's, where, the, that's where the conversation took me. That's where the conversation took you, and that's a great place. Um, so the only one that you've – we'll talk more about the warehouse and what the warehouse does and uh, the processes around that. But is there a verse, is there a book that you that you esteem that talk that talks about justice for you? Um, so I mean, there are lots, um, and I'm just going to quickly remind myself of the exact passage. Um, um, but a, a, a passage that's been. Um, um been on my heart and my mind and I, I think I'm probably gonna need to spend a few moments um finding it while I'm talking. Um yes yeah, from two kings. So so you know there's um there's lots of books. I, I love Isaiah. I love the arc of Isaiah that has like 40 chapters of lament and naming the evil. <laughs> you know I've in the last year um friends have helped me um, like deepen my understanding of revelation as apocalyptic in, in the midst of this apocalypse we're facing. But um, a year or so ago, we as the warehouse, just over a year, find ourselves in, in the passage of 2 Kings 7. Um, I can't even remember what brought us into it, but we found ourselves living in this passage of 2 Kings 7, which tells the story of a, of a siege. Um, and um, and so there's there's this this um, the siege that's happening in a city, and um, um, the king is there, and the prophets are there, and there's all this stuff happening, and and the and the scripture tells the story of um, of women who are um, uh, eating their children. Um, because the city is under famine because it's under siege. And so there's this, these women who are fighting over their children to decide, I will eat your child today and my child tomorrow. And there's a king who's wandering the, the walls, like arguing at the prophet and saying, we're going to kill you tomorrow because this is your fault. Um, so there are all these stories. And, and then there's this moment where there are four men, for lepers, for outcasts, for people who, for whom the city has no hope, under siege or not. So it talks about these four men sitting at the gate and they say to themselves, um, why should we sit here to, to, why should we sit here until we die? If we go into the city and participate in the city, we're going to die. And, and, and if we sit here, we're going to die. And so why don't we, why don't we go to the enemy because we might die there, but it's possible that we won't. 
and um, and what happens is is that they go to the enemy and they discover that God's redemption has come for the city and that the enemy have been put under fear and so they've all run away and and so these these four people enter the enemy camp and they discover the enemy is dispersed and the city is no longer under siege and and they like decide they're going to feast and then they say no this is good news we shouldn't hold it to ourselves and so they go back to a city that has outcast them and tell the good news and and then they disappear from the story um there's redemption and it's been a, a passage that has stuck with me over the last year or so that you had the city that redemption had already come but in the city yeah. the wealthy and the powerful were talking about whose children to eat and and um and the people on the outside who had no hope who for whom the city had excluded and rejected they discover the redemptive work of god and they are the ones that that identify and notice the redemptive work of god in their lives in the life of the city and they are the ones that can speak that redemption now there's good reason to be critical of the of the narrative because then they disappear from the story and all the rest of it but it's really struck me about like as I think about a city and then increasingly over the last year under COVID is like, where do we look for our stories of redemption? Mm. You know, that's, and, and where do we understand where the, the work of God is going to be noticed? And, and for those of us who have our hope of survival. So these two women arguing, they've got a hope of survival if they can eat each other's children. And so they fight about the children they're going to eat. So we sacrifice children in different ways yeah. uh, on education and employment or whatever because we hope that we might. And yet the people on the furthest outskirts are the ones that point to God's redemptive purposes in the space. Um, and, and so that's been a passage over the last year that I find myself chewing on a lot is, is what do I learn from that as a person in a city where as a white person and as an employed person, as a male, um, as someone of my age, like, like there's a reasonable chance of survival and um, where do who do I look to and where do I look for God's grace and God's mystery and God's presence? And and what this passage has pushed me to do is to say, be attentive to the stories, those people who are saying, Well, I've got nothing to gain for being in the city. Like mm. what are they what are they telling about what they're seeing? And how does that help me understand what God is doing for the city? Because it's tempting for me to go well what is what is the mayor talking about what's the most popular pastor talking about what are yeah. my friends you've got lots of money talking about because surely they can point to hope for the new city for me and this passage in 2 Kings 7 has invited me to say what what, what are these people who actually rightly so have given up hope on the city where are their stories of God's presence and and God's redemption and what is the good news they're seeing um and it's an evocative, confusing passage, but it's not sort of sexy like Isaiah or Revelation or one of the gospel stories. <laughs> it's yeah. one of these Old Testament stories that, quite frankly, I don't think I've ever read or heard about. Like, who wants to preach about two ladies arguing over which child they're going to eat? And and yet there's this, mm. the more I've read it, particularly reading it with people whose social location isn't mine. Mm the the deeper my invitation into um god's mystery in the world becomes
Oh, wow. I, thank you. I, I, I feel, I now want to go back and read that uh, scripture again, because this, I'm like, wait, what? There was, I thought even when you were talking about it, you would be talking about the uh, King Solomon and all of those things. I was like, these are different women. Right. So, um, what what do you think is, and this is where I see the warehouse equips the church. So, why was it important for 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 the institution for the organization to decide that they will equip the church to do? the work of justice. Yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of other good places to, you know, you can work with schools. Um, so I think in answering that question, um, it's not simply to say there are no other places where it can happen. <laughs> um, but for us, and, and it's not a kind of place that we don't argue with ourselves about regularly, <laughs> is there's a, a sort of belief in faith of that if we, if we truly believe that the coming of Jesus Christ is good news to people who are poor, um, then the poverty and injustice we face, um, if it encounters the fullness of Jesus, then it must be good news for them. Um, that if we allow... Um, the story of the redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt and the, the way in which God introduces that story in scripture as a picture of redemption, then if, if that's true for them, then what does it mean for us for God's redemptive purposes in the world right now? Those things drive us to say, well, then surely God's people in this world need to be participating in that redemption and that that redemption um, should be full and be good news to those who are who are poor. And, and so that's the one driver is like, we are followers of Jesus. We are a people of faith in Jesus. And so we want to, but that for every congregation in the church, that part of our work in the world is to proclaim this peace and justice of God for the world. And so that's what we want to call people to that, that the testimony of the prophets, the testimony of Christ, the testimony of the history of the church invites us into that part. Um, and then the other thing in the South African context is that somewhere around 80% of South Africans describe themselves as Christian and have some connection to saying we're at a church. And so they're, they're, it's in a, a, um, and so that's true too, is that there's this tremendous opportunity to engage the population in that regard. Um, and then in the history of South Africa, the church was, was both um, both the place that um, perpetuated oppression, that brought oppression, that the theology of apartheid was nurtured on the mother's milk of the church, but was also the place of liberation, was also, um, you know, whether we think of, of Subukwe or we think of, of um, Tutu and others, you know, that, that part of our liberation struggle was, was located in that. And so we've got those three 
arcs that we lean into, like the story of our place, the, the story of our, of our history, and then the, the theology and ecclesiology of the people of God that we believe are called. And so that's what we want to do. And we've got a, a particular calling, I think, to say, well, what does that mean locally? Not the church as a big universal idea institutionally, but that, that group of people gathered together in some form in a neighborhood, um, as Bryant Myers might say, living for the good of the community in which God has placed them. Msingi is a Swahili word meaning foundation. Our name and mandate comes from Psalms 89.14. We host engaging conversations on faith, social justice and advocacy across all our social media platforms. We also offer training and consultancy services to help you navigate the world of social justice and faith. To engage with us, visit our website www.msingitrust.org Follow us on all our social media handles at msingitrust or email us on info at msingitrust.org and, and what could you say you've seen working? What, what, what has worked for you? What has been a challenge? I'd like, I'd, because I one of the things Singi is now in year three. You guys are in year 15. And um, definitely I'm always learning from, from what you're doing. But I find that for, for the Kenyan context, the, the realization that justice is part of, of the gospel is a big one. It's not obvious. It's not an obvious um, conversation. And so I'm wondering for you, and now, especially coming from, the, from a history where there's harmful theologies that, as you said, birthed and cooked in the milk of, uh, uh, but what was the term you said that apartheid was? I think I said it was sort of nurtured on the milk of the church or something, I think was the word. Yes, I something used to. like that. Yeah, so I'm wondering how, what have you seen working? What, what have you seen uh, not working? Sure. So much. I heard a story earlier today of, um, of a person talking about a, a mountain climber climbing somewhere on a rock face that had never been climbed. And the interview was asking this climber, how do you feel about the fact that you fail every time you climb? And the, because this rock face had never been climbed. And the, then the answer from the person was, I haven't failed. I'm learning. Mm. I'm practicing like every time I climb a little bit further because I'm going to beat this wall. <laughs> so I think there's, there's that element to it is that the, the depth and extent of injustice and poverty and oppression in this world, I think is so much bigger than, than we necessarily realize that it's, mm -hmm. that it's so deeply rooted and embedded. And when, and all of us, when we start, I think it's, we, we see it in terms of, or maybe it's just me, but we see it in terms of this person's hungry, we'll feed them, that will solve the problem. And then we discover that, no, we have to keep feeding and we discover that their food has been stolen and we discover that they don't have access to land because their land was taken. And, and we discover that, um, you know, there's an addiction that was perpetrated by the South African government selling drugs during apartheid. So you, you, you slowly build up this image where what you thought was the cause of poverty was 
you know, to quote the disciples was the sin of the person. So we just need to deal with that. And then, then you discover it's taking place in the powers and principalities of this world. And so you want to like run a prayer movement and then you discover that it's deeply rooted in the history and oppression. So you want to deal with that. And then you realize, oh, it's deeply rooted in the corruption and systems now. And then, and then, you know, it's just like, ah! you know, and praise, praise My- Jesus that the love of God is higher and wider and deeper and longer than anything we confess because surely we need it. So, you know, the, the failings we've made sadly are probably the failings of lots of places where our, our, our diagnosis, our understanding was insufficient. And, and so we thought that what the church needed initially, we, we thought that, that the church knew what it needed to do and what it needed help with was project design and community development and things. And so I sometimes joke that we hired community developers and tried to teach them a little bit of theology. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we sort of, we, we helped with, with project development and, and, um, and kind of trying to work in a, a participatory way of working alongside local congregations, but it was very focused on like, and, and you go and talk to congregations and their answers would be like, we need help with food. We need help with orphans. We need help with gangsterism and employment. Okay. Well, let's design it. Let's just help work with you to design an initiative and, and, um, and didn't do enough work immersing ourselves in the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. And Jaya Kumar Christian, he's an Indian theologian talks about the poor being imprisoned by the God complexes of the rich. And and didn't do enough work immersing ourselves in our own God complexes, yeah. and and where those were rooted, and and so we climbed that wall and fell on the first rung, and climbed a little bit further and fell on the second rung. Um, but so I would say, like one of the biggest lessons for me is the importance of of some form of reflective praxis, of some form of, I mean, you know, the traditions, the action learning cycles, all of those things, but the need to deeply embed that in your working life because the um, the thing we face is not only big, but it changes all the time. You know, our friend Renee likes to talk about the, the empire spirit will morph, it will shape shift. Um, so you, you, you will think you've beaten it and it will turn into something else. And so, the, the, the work that is challenging our work is always shifting. The context is changing. And so we, we need to be able to reflect on our work regularly and deeply. Um, and we've got tremendous capacity for self-deception. And so we need to have reflective practice that deliberately draws in voices that are outside of our normal listening, voices and people and stories that will challenge our understanding and say, well, you think you've been great, but actually you're problematic. And so, I think one of the lessons has been is like, how do you build that into institutional life of an organization, of a ministry, alongside trying to like fundraise and tell people about things? And so, um, so that's foundation mm-hmm. then becomes a like, well, how do you build practice out of that? And that's, it's difficult, but not impossible because so something allied to that would be that I think one of our lessons has been that in the work that we do, best practice is a very problematic idea. So best practice as an idea is the idea that you can, you can find a problem, identify a solution, and then you can build a best practice to solve it. And then you can take that best practice and apply it in Kibera and Kailicha, in Kinshasa, in Chile, in uh, Chicago, because you've now got a best practice. And what it ignores is both in geography and in time, 
the situation is very different and you don't necessarily actually know what solved things. And so the notion of a best practice is impossible. And actually I think is quite damaging. Um, yeah. But our NGO colonial mindset is and, find a best and, practice, replicate it and make it bigger. And I think best practice is normally how it worked in, in places where it was white-led, it was hmm. male-led, the circumstances hmm. were, were in that way, it was imposed yeah. in one way or another. Hmm. Or it could be also in small communities where they already had a, a good, a good uh, social, social network. And so it was able, they were able to reach the results that they reached quicker because of years and years and years and even generations of, um, of community, community practice that we just insert ourselves as social workers and sociologists and community workers without acknowledging the, the, the things, the behind the scenes that we don't, we are not normally as aware of as people who are not as in, in part of that context. So, um, yeah. Absolutely. I and so those things, these go on. I think, I think one of the lessons, and then we can talk about things I think we've done that have worked maybe, <laughs> yes, is um, <laughs> I think you articulated at the start is, is you know, Steve Beaker talks about, I, I think it's the, the, the best weapon in the, in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. You know, and I think we could expand on that and say it's also the mind of the oppressor, like the, the mind of the oppressor also needs to be liberated in a different way, but needs to be repented and renounced and step into new things. But the the role in which mindsets and beliefs and theologies play a role in holding us captive to poverty and injustice, like that work needs to happen, like um, how how do we deepen that work and so it is a work of theology it is a work of immersion it is a work of understanding what is the call of god to this people at this time in this place and not not like how did it get done in london or washington dc and now we're going to just spew you that theology into here you know that that that's that we live a colonial theology that has held us back from experiencing full liberation communally and individually and so if we're going to see the church living out this it doesn't start with projects it starts with with going deep into that work and that that in our context is true both for the church that primarily exists within a poor community that has experienced ongoing oppression that that deep work of liberation from the 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 chains of oppression is critical that the chains must be broken but actually it's also true for the churches that are primarily those who are the oppressor and live the fruits of, of, of the benefits of their story, because mm -hmm. otherwise when they act, we, they, I, otherwise when I act, I act out of, out of guilt or paternalism or patriarchy and, and I act from my God complex. So unless I've done the liberative work of understanding that those are not the things those are not the mountains I need to look like to my salvation. Mm -hmm. Unless I've done that work, then my actions in pursuit of justice and peace are likely to be oppressive. Yeah. 
um, they're likely to perpetuate that which I'm claiming to do because the empire will shift and I won't notice. Um, and so I will be doing good and I'll get lots of kudos for it and I will get some awards and maybe I'll be invited to lead an international NGO and the community remains exactly the same as it always was, but I'm now doing a whole lot better. And, and so that finding ways of leaning into that work and understanding God's liberative presence in those spaces is, is part of the work. And I think that's where success is a big word in this world, but, yeah. but I think um, there's a, there's um there's an Australian community developer called Peter Westerby, and he talks about the work of um, community development is the movement from I to we, and the movement from private to public. That that we that we 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 take privately held concerns and dreams, mm-hmm. and we move them into public action taken with others. Yeah, and 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 I think one of the places we've started seeing success is where we've been able to not come with a project, but where we have journeyed alongside people and help them find each other so that their eyes became we, that I'm not alone anymore. I'm not the only one who feels this, you know. Um, I'm not the only student who goes to a church who feels like the church doesn't have an answer to the systemic oppression I'm experiencing and I discover some others and I discover I'm not outside the faith. I am, I'm, I can find good news because I found some people that I can cry with and lament with and study with. And then we can find a way of acting together. And, and, and when that action happens, the, the warehouse isn't even known. Like it's not, like the, the 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 involvement of the warehouse, you have to kind of pull away the weeds and look around and go, oh, oh, that's um, and Corsi and Corsi was there, or Renee was there, or Craig was there. Whoa, you all speak about. I mean, I had this. It was a very, it was an encouraging moment. I won't lie, because it was. I you know because I had this moment where a reporter called me a couple of years ago and and said. I'm talking about some stuff and said, um, you're the only white person I'm talking to about this. And she said, you want to know why this wasn't on record. It was just a conversation. And she said, mm-hmm. because every time I pressed into places that were answering the questions I was interested in, the people said, she said, there was always this moment where they said, Oh, and then so-and-so from the warehouse hung out with me or mm-hmm. I was invited to go to this warehouse event. And, and she said, all these places like, Mm, there was something in their story that they were, and that's so I'd say like that's the success. I, so I think, but that's difficult because that's even naming it a success feels wrong to me because mm-hmm. we weren't the only people on those journeys, and we, you know, there were we we. It's, it's just true for us that I becomes we, like mm-hmm. like Msingi and and. Simon Peter and the Center for Urban Mission and the Warehouse and mm-hmm. some of our dreams that we're beginning to talk about. Um, and then you add some others around the world and the country, like like we're finding each other and it's the work of God. But I think where we've been able to choose to see the work of God and then and then enter into it, to discern, because I think one of the underlying pieces is in the face of this, can I still believe that God is present and active in the world? So like my story from Gazankulu or like the story from 2 Kings 6 and 7, um, is it true that God is present in these places that, that mm-hmm. are experiencing such oppression? And if it is true, then do I make sure that I do the work of understanding what God is doing there? 
so that I can participate in that. And that takes discipline. That mm. takes deliberate practice. That takes a dying to self. And, and so I think that's an area we're increasingly learning from mm. is how to do that. And then, you know, it sounds very nice, like, oh, we'll do things. And then when they do that, they'll say, look at what we've done. And they won't even know the organization. It's a lovely statement, but yes, it's hard to do. <laughs> because my, my, my ego wants to be given credit, Carol. I'm not going to lie. I want yeah. people to stand up and say, we're so grateful to Craig and the warehouse for, mm -hmm. for building this project that has saved us. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it, it feels funny to listen and go, oh, like they didn't even invite us to their thing. And, you know, um, so I, I'm a bad, I'm a bad man, Carol. I have an ego that wants to, you know, but it's, it's, mm -hmm. that's the joy of friends and, and compatriots and co-conspirators. But if we can all see ourselves as I becoming we and private becoming public, like we need to, we need to move these things that we cry about at night and that we dream about over the meal times and yeah. find ways of acting on them together in the public realm. Mm. Because the, the forces of darkness we know are doing that. They are conspiring in darkness to act in the public realm to our collective detriment. Yeah. Um, I always say, Craig, that evil has a plan. And so we need to be better planners than evil. Amen. Because, amen. Yeah. <laughs> we need to always conspire more than evil because evil is always planning. And um, I want to add uh, a success uh, on the warehouse. I think there are so many other ministries that have been incubated at the warehouse. And that's a testament of the, of the community that is there. I I say this and I do not um, I do not understate it that if had it not been for the warehouse I would not have had the courage to do what I'm doing right now and this is not just you but everybody mm. at the warehouse from uh, from everyone and um, the the amount of the kind of pray, uh, the kind of prayers that I've been prayed for <laughs> at the warehouse over so many years mm. that span ten years, I definitely mm. believe that, uh, and I'm not the only recipient of those prayers. The communal prayers, the the listening prayers, the discernment prayers from 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 when I was leaving South Africa in 2010 to my last time in, in Cape Town, still mm. you guys prayed for me. And so I, I am grateful mm. for the, for the seeds that, that you, you, you plant and you incubate. Mm. <sighs> so, yeah. So uh, I, I feel like we're, I want to ask about bridging inequality and how how do we bridge inequalities? Because a lot of our work, the moving from from my me to we, private to public, is a, is about dismantling uh, structures. Hmm. It sounds very easy, but it's a <laughs> It's, it isn't no. because one, we're always looking out for self. Two, mm. we want to take advantage of others. That's the fallen nature. Mm. And three, capitalism has us 
um, mm. doing that. But the work that we are doing, the work of church injustice, faith injustice, social justice, the work of activism in schools, in the streets, wherever it is, is about smashing the, the inequalities. And there's gender inequality, there's race inequality, there's uh, class inequality, there's sexual orientation inequalities. What, what's the first what's the first place that we need to be at so that we start having these conversations yeah. mm. so we start having these conversations I mean you know there's that cliche that it's not so much a problem of poverty as it is a problem of greed so some of the work must happen amongst people like me who are greedy or fearful that there won't be enough. So I need to secure what I think is enough for me to make it through to whatever and my children's children's children. And so I, I'm not willing to let go and live in God's abundance because I'm fearful that there's not enough. And that turns into greed and it turns into oppression. Um, so how do we, you know, so, so how do we interrupt that? I suppose is one of my questions, you know, like we, um, I always I sit with two sides to this coin, I think. I don't know the answer to your question for first step, Carol, so I'll, but we'll explore some options. <laughs> so I think... That's okay. Mm -hmm. So I think there's the, the work that's, that happens um, that is about maybe answering Biko's question about how do you... How do you break the chains holding the mind of the oppressed in captivity? Um, and, and that, you know, in the South African construct, for example, I, I believe that one of our failures as a country was that in our conversation of being a miracle country, that it only had forgiveness in the miracle. It didn't have repentance and restitution in the miracle mm -hmm. that yeah. white people were let off the hook or more correctly, white people took themselves off the hook and avoided that part. So we loved being the rainbow nation. And so suddenly, mm -hmm. you know, suddenly my, my friends and family who thought Desmond Tutu was a heretic, suddenly he was all right. You know, it was very lovely to have a new flag and feel welcomed into the world, but, but we didn't do the work. And, and so I believe one of the journeys that needs to happen for the perpetrators of oppression, and so in particular in my context, white men, mm. um, is the journey towards repentance restitution that needs to happen. That's, mm. That we need to find ways of constantly interrupting in such a way that, that, that structurally and otherwise those will be, and it's not just a personal journey because that oppression is in behaviors, it's in policies, it's in structures, it's in flags, it's in all these things. You know, if I, if I look to my right now, I look up on the mountain and there's a, a memorial called Rhodes Memorial and on it there's a statue and it talks about his brooding spirit, may his brooding spirit rest. I'm like, we need to break that brooding spirit of colonial oppression, you know. Um, so we need to interrupt that and that work needs to happen because that is 
how white people and oppressors of any form will become more fully human, become more, more like who God has created us to be, that we can live with a sense of abundance that God has given enough and therefore I can live freely in the world and not have to oppress women, gay people, black people, whatever. And so we need to like, how do we need to pray and we need to act and we need to work so that we interact and that takes bodies, you know, like it, it, yeah. it's not, it's, it, it's not just unfriending someone on Facebook or it actually takes getting in a room and having a conversation and getting on committees and sitting in boardrooms and voting in school meetings and changing the structure of businesses. Like it takes deliberate intentional work and we need to do that as white people particularly. And, the, and then there's the, that, that's um, the work of what happens for people who are on the other side of that equation. And I think, I think, and this is a dialogue I think I need to have more, so I'm articulating it somewhat cautiously, is, is that I think repentance and restitution must happen in South Africa from white people. But the restoration and redemption of black people and women and gay people isn't contingent on that. That's, mm. That the full liberation can happen even if white people never get it. Um, mm. and, and so what, is, what does that mean? How, does, how do we enter into... I personally, what I think the aspects of black consciousness call us to think about and engage with... Um, and, and own humanity. And so we need to interrupt the, the kind of white supremacy there as well and, and, and break those chains. So that for me is part of the bridging inequality. And, and then that does translate into building institutions, mm. creating new rules, doing all sorts of things. And some of it's quite boring, you know, like on both sides. I sometimes talk about boring justice. There's like the sexy justice, but sometimes it's just bored. Like the last three years, I've been part of this process to change the badge of a school that my kids are being part of. Yeah. And it's been underpinned by quite a deliberate conversation in the school, not perfectly. And I think there's good question to be critical of the very notion of how schools function in our city. But like just as a little microcosm, this the work of, of articulating what, what does the school want to be in its re renouncing of its colonial past as a, mm. as a school that in its student population in particular doesn't, is now the demographic of Cape Town. How do we yeah. do that together? And that, that was long board meetings and asking competitions for new things and doing stuff. And, and then we could present this to the world in a way that was good and right. And so, I think it's, we, we've got to recognize, maybe here's my answer, we've got to recognize it takes hard work. Yeah. It's, yes, and, and although social media is an important space, so I'm not denigrating it, I've got wonderful friends whose, whose particular calling is there and I think that's right for them. Mm -hmm. but, but for those of us who don't feel as comfortable in that space, like to recognize like actually this work gets done on the ground, in the places, immersing ourselves in the story. Uh, I was I was with this guy Shamir this morning who's a who's a free diver and he's and we ended up having this conversation about when you look at the Cape Town Ocean it can be cold and stuff and for them for him it was a place of exclusion. 
for his family. They weren't allowed to swim there. He wasn't allowed to swim there when he grew up. And now he can. And he says, and then when he goes below the surface, the world opens up and there's mm. starfish and octopuses and all the rest of it. Mm. And, I, and I wonder whether part of our work is to help people. And he talks about you need to slow down and breathe because the water's cold. To, to allow everybody to slow down and breathe and see what's there. Mm. And, then, and then we start interrupting that inequality. Like, I'm not someone that's probably something I'm bad at. It's like, I, I can't walk into a room and say, I've got a grand plan to end inequality. Yeah. Because I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it's messy. I think it's, we're, we're constantly interrupting and building, building home, building networks of activists building community and relationship, making the I become we and the private become public. And it's happening every day in the places we live, in the churches we go to, in the places we work, in the schools we attend, in the boardrooms we're part of, in the neighborhood we're in, mm. in the WhatsApp group we're on. How are we doing it? Carol, this felt like it was a very long rambling answer to your question. <laughs> no, it, 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 That's how we do it. Every day, every hour, yeah. in the place where you are. <laughs> But that's the reality of these conversations because it's they are so they are simple, hard, simple and hard truths. They're um, the questions about power, about privilege, about gender, about walking some people because sometimes there are others who get it sooner. There's someone who for the three-year process, got its at meeting one, but there's someone who only agreed at meet mm. year three last meeting. That's how it took. And yeah. I think the work of becoming we is holding those tensions together mm. and, and uh, having the grace to know one that you will mess up, you'll fall, mm. but that that we we fall forward that sounds like a cliche but let's fall knowing that <laughs> that we are we are we are falling as we are learning yeah. and not failing our way forward yeah yeah failing our way forward yeah mm, we, we wrap up our conversations i want to find out what's the hope for the african church jesus is the hope, carol jesus is the hope. <laughs> And in terms of justice, because of um, Africa, we're we are apparently now the most Christian, uh, one of the most, I think our percentages are growing daily. Then um, what what is the hope for the Christian church? And especially when it comes to justice and advocacy, mm. Because the the kind of faith that and the gospel that we we are is growing is not is not one that uh, considers justice as important. Mm. Mm. But what what are the shoots that you're seeing? What is the hope? Is there a hope? Am I forcing hope? <laughs> the African church <laughs> depends on the day you ask me. Yeah. Um. He has, a, he has an attempt at an answer. I, th I think all over this continent, there are 
people wandering around a wilderness and they're mm -hmm. bumping into burning bushes yeah. and they're encountering a God who says to them, I've seen and heard and felt the cry of my people. And so I need you to come and proclaim liberation with me. And so you need to leave the wilderness <laughs> and come and and come and find some others and, and journey with me in bringing about liberation that, that somehow we find ourselves back in Christ for the world rather than in the world for Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I look around my country and I look around the parts of the continent that I know and read about and listen, I, I recognize that there are those people, mm. you know, and so, and so what is my hope? I, I, my hope is that I, I do believe God is present in, in these places. I believe that God weeps for the things we weep for. I believe that God has seen and heard and felt the cries. And I believe that there are people, many of them younger, yeah. you know, my generation and older, there are some remarkable, I met a 70 year old activist yesterday who blew my socks off. I, I walked away so inspired. I was like, yes. You know, who's the, who's the guy in the Old Testament who when they, he was like still really old and like doing what he needed to do. But um, I think as I, as I think around the continent, so, you know, someone like you and, and so many others is you've experienced or are experiencing wilderness. And I think this is true around the world. Like we've got this big institutional church that in many ways has run out of ideas, imaginative ideas for seeing change in the world. And in many ways, that lack of imagination has resulted in people wandering off into the wilderness and saying, like, I can't, I can't do that anymore. I've, I've been the Moses who tried to kill the Egyptian um, to bring liberation, and the Egyptians didn't like me, and the Jewish people didn't like me. And, and so now I don't know. And somehow in the wilderness, we're encountering each other and we're encountering God's call Mm. And, and, and so God starts drawing these people together and the eyes become we and the me's become we and that, that privately held wandering in the desert going, but I believe in something more becomes a public held act of saying, we can do this together. We can run a justice conference here. We can hold a worship learning event in a community of Nairobi. We can, we can dream of a different way of thinking about food security and planting gardens. Mm -hmm. We can, we can build a house using sandbags and funny wireframes. Mm -hmm. um, we can create home wherever we are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we, we, we encounter that moment in the wilderness and we start making that public. And so where's my hope is that I see those people I hear about them. I know that God's hand is on you and on others. And 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 so my hope is that we can be a witness to that grace. Mm. And it's going to be a long struggle. We got to, we've got a big wall to climb and we're going to fall off a few times and we're probably going to have to hand over to another generation and another generation and another generation. But we don't do this work. I don't think. Miguel de la Torre has helped me see this. We don't do this work because we necessarily think we're going to see the end while we're here. We do this work because we believe in a God who does this work and we are going to interrupt the empire and the kingdom of darkness every chance we get in our neighborhood, on the street corner, in the city, 
in the country, on the continent, in church, out of church. We're going to proclaim the good news of Jesus in a way that does this. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And and I feel I feel it's the pouring of new wineskins, mm. new mm. new wines, new wineskins, mm. and um, mm. just that process of of newness, mm. creating creating for the future generations. I obviously mm. that I do this work so that my nieces. Mm. granddaughter will not have to fight yeah. the same battles that I am. Yeah. So yeah. it's also that it's a long, it's a long, mm. long, mm. long, long. It's for, mm. for long, it's for the long term and it's not for you. Mm. Yeah. Most times mm. it won't be for you. So, mm. yeah, I don't know if you have any parting shots. We. <laughs> I felt like I made one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe just to qualify, like to say that I think these people in the wilderness are inside the institutional church and they're outside the institutional church. You know that 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 these these people that God's hand is on um, are in surprising places. And so, I want to say to to all of us because I know you've got this remarkable community. It's like the the me needs to become we. We need to find each other. It's not about the little kingdoms we're building. It's about us building together. And and that. Our friend Renee likes to say, like we're it's what you've just said, we're not in a we're not in a sprint, we're in a marathon. And so we need to breathe. So so maybe let me say, like, I'm I'm old enough to be done this for a while. Look after yourselves, take mm-hmm. care of yourselves, pay attention to the trauma and the violence, give attention to healing and joy. What did Lysander say? Joy as an act of resistance, I think she said on the on your podcast. Lysander says wise things always. Yes, she, does, think- she does, she does. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and and so I know you have a, a listenership that's interested in this stuff. And I think mm-hmm. it's like be attentive to caring for if you wish your soul. Um and and um and that your hard work is not going to be the thing that changes us. So be attentive to being careful with yourself. And then we can be brave and courageous and act hard and be bold and do all of those things, but take care of yourself because you are loved mm. and your worth doesn't come from the thing you're doing. Yep. Amen. And that's why we call him Uncle Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very well, much for staying. It's a pleasure. Uh, Yes, for for being my guests, um, I'm feeling oh, such a joy. Yeah, so for everybody who would like to know uh, the warehouse website, it's www.warehouse.org.za. I know it offhand. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yes, uh, and follow their work. Um, uh, yeah, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, so we're there, the Warehouse Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I occasionally play on Twitter as Craig D. Stewart, so cool. find me there. All right, thank you very much. Thank um, you. If you've been inspired, challenged, and or enjoyed this conversation and would like to contribute to this and catch up with more of such, remember to follow us on social media at Musingi Trust Share this podcast with your friends and family and also consider making a donation to 
support the production of this podcast. Donations can be made through PayPal, msingikenya at gmail.com, Patreon at msingikenya, or through M-Pesa, plus 254-792-176-030. Kwaherini, and thank you for joining us.